0: So, I thought I'd offer some reflections about uh, freedom. Freedom is the promise of our practice. And the, the, the concept of freedom gets sort of um, bandied about in different ways social freedoms. Mm. Political freedoms, civil freedoms, and all of which are important. And we can see uh, some of the kind of our cultural evolution in terms of the, the progress and winning of certain freedoms. And we might also look at alar- with alarm at some of our cultural movements in terms of the erosion of some of those freedoms. And the freedom I'd like to speak about this evening is the, the freedom that this practice is most essentially concerned with uh, Existential freedom The freedom of our being The knowing a freedom of within this condition we find ourselves in, this human condition And we are drawn to this practice, right? because of some wish for freedom, some intuition of freedom, some knowing of freedom which we want to explore more fully and deepen, etc. And we have that sense through, through being here, through being on retreat, through being involved in that practice, we have that sense that freedom seems to be, existential freedom seems to be an inner matter rather than just uh, a matter for, what we were calling yesterday, a self in a world. If you were convinced that just being a self in a world could provide freedom, you'd be out there doing your best to be a successful self in a crazy world, trying to find some freedom in that. And I don't mean to be dismissive of that sense of self and world, in any way. I, uh, I spend my life um, appearing as if I am a self in a world with the various worldly uh, activities and concerns and things that uh, you all know. right? The worldly uh, business of maintaining a home and uh, Having had two, two children, and um, making a living, and all of that, and both which involves, of course, both navigating the challenges of uh, all of that and um, being nourished by the delights of uh, of all of that, the delights of ones of relationships, the delights of uh, uh, engagement with what one feels is important, etc. And yet, through, like I say, through being here, there's some sense that freedom, existential freedom, the freedom of one's being, the freedom meaning to abide freely, to abide freely, whatever the conditions are, right? Whatever the conditions are, otherwise it's a very partial freedom. If We can only be free if conditions are all set up the way I'd like them to be. Because as we know, from doing our best to be a self in a world, most conditions are completely out of our control. So we have this vision of a freedom that's independent of conditions, a freedom that we can know and taste and abide in, whatever the conditions are, whatever the physical conditions are, whatever one's emotional conditions are, whatever the worldly conditions are. And I thought I'd just offer some reflections uh, of some elements, some of the qualities that conduce to this freedom of being in a way that hopefully maps onto how we're spending our time here and how you can incline your intent uh, your attention while here so the first quality we would we might call clarity and and clarity conduces to freedom. The clarity conduces to freedom by dissolving our delusions. Clarity illuminates where our mind has gotten bogged down in some rigid views. And traditionally, the Buddha unpacks that in the tradition in several, different, in several different parts of that. First one, sati, mindfulness. Right? So that way in which we've been cultivating this, this element of clarity, our pr- presence of mind, moment by moment. It's a quite a rare thing. As we've been saying, well, awareness is already here, and experience is already here. But actually, uh, be really being around moment by moment so that wa- the one can see that doesn't come so easily to us. So we cultivate presence of mind which increasingly in our culture is being known as this word mindfulness. Right? Presence of mind, clear awareness, moment by moment attention, knowing what you're knowing as it's being known. And then the second aspect of clarity, in Buddhist language called samadhi, really just means steadiness or stability of mind. Which again, we're just cultivating through the day, right? Moment to moment attention, knowing what's happening. And then when you, when you find that you've gone, gotten lost, just coming back again, as graciously as you can, with as little fuss as possible. Moment by moment attention, and inclining your attention again and again like that, so it starts to stabilize and steady. And some of you are familiar enough with meditation practice, particularly with retreat practice, to know that oh, if you engage that you are at that moment to moment presence of mind quite sincerely and consistently, then that stability starts to grow. Mind starts to stay in one place and that, that, st- that stability of mind then increases the clarity. Moment-by-moment oh, moment attention and starting to stabilize. When things stabilize our experience starts to open up. It's very hard for us to really see into our experience when mind is pinging around all over the place. As somebody was just speaking about our busy mind, and when attention's been stimulated, or when attention hasn't been trained at all, maybe, or when attention has been trained previously, but then since the last retreat, like people often say, "I've gotten so busy," or "my life has been so intense." In other words, I've sort of abandoned myself to pinging around a lot, which. Uh, which doesn't have to happen regardless of how intense and engaged one's life is. Then, moment to moment, presence of mind, plus a certain steadying through the engagement of that, oh, experience starts to open up. And then third quality, in Buddhist language, virya, means kind of brightness of mind. A bright engagement, we might call it. And as experience st- starts to open up, oh, we see how rich it is to be right here where life is happening. To be able to actually penetrate experience instead of just thinking a bit about experience and then linking that thought to a thought about something else and then thinking about something else and then thinking about something else. So that brightness of of mind that starts to be able to actually penetrate or explore what's happening, to be able to see the kind of dimensionality of our experience, to know where a thought arises from, to really feel what that thought does to me. To recognize the way we tend to get caught up, to get compelled, to get resistant, etc. To start to actually see that we have some choice in there. That we don't need to follow each compulsion. That we don't need to stay uh, caught in resistance. That we have this flexibility of mind to be able to oh, to leave some of that stuff alone. To abide in a way that's uncompelled, uncontracted. And then fourth element if you're tracking. So presence of mind, stability of mind, and brightness, or penetration of mind, and then fourth, confidence of mind. One starts to feel a certain confidence in one's practice, a certain confidence in one's capacity to attend wisely, a certain confidence in the possibility of abiding freely. And starts to feel and know the fruits of one's practice. And then, the fifth element in that series, wisdom, panya. One starts to really see something about. We were speaking yesterday about uh, letting go, or the way it's in the in the tradition called not clinging, one starts to know something not in a cognitive way but in, in one's cells about not fussing with one's experience, not making a dra- an inner drama where there doesn't need to be one. One starts to know something about abiding freely with conditions, pleasant conditions or unpleasant conditions. So, helpful to see this very, very ordinary activity we're doing here, right? It's hard to think of a way we could just make our activity here more ordinary or more simple. Just sitting quietly, walking quietly, eating quietly, and that's it, right? hard to simplify things more. And yet to see how this simplicity is conducing to freedom, how this simplicity is uh, generating or cultivating clarity. The clarity that can see what's going on. Presence of mind. The clarity that can stabilize with one's experience. The clarity that can engage with the content of one's experience, can look into, can penetrate, can explore what's happening. And clarity that one starts to know and feel and trust one's practice. And that clarity of wisdom. <coughs> it's that wonderful line that I was so struck by when I first read it in uh, the novel Siddhartha by Hermann Hess. And I just gave uh, just last week. It only just occurred to me after uh, my son's 18, nearly 19, and it only just occurred to me to give him Siddhartha. So I, I don't know why it took me so long, but as I gave it to him, and he'd never heard of Hermann Hesse, so I'm sure, it he's ba- reflects badly on me. <laughs> but and I just recalled that line, where somebody asks Siddhartha, "What what skills do you have? What uh, what can you do?" And he says, I can sit, I can listen. No, God, I can't even remember what it is. He says, I can sit, I can fast, and I can wait. Or I can sit, I can listen, and I can wait. What does he Who remembers? Fast. fast, is that it? I can sit, I can fast, and I can wait. Wow. Of course, the person who's implor- seeking to employ him and isn't doesn't really recognize those things in the novel has skills. And those are what fabulous skills, I can sit and be with what is. I can fast, which in our case isn't so much about just a kind of not eating fasting. It means I can kind of restrain my senses from their compulsive need to get, have, consume experience. And I can wait. I can hang out with what's here in such a way as to be able to handle experience, explore experience, look into the nature of experience. So we call it meditation, or we call it sitting and walking, or we call it a silent retreat, etc. But helpful, I think, just to see the, the unfolding of the days here, the unfolding of your practice here, as a kind of a training in clarity a training in wisdom a clarity that dissolves in the seeing that dissolves some of our um, problem-making activity dissolves our compulsions, dissolves our contractions dissolves our confusions Another way to look at this practice of freedom is in terms of um, s- developing skillfulness skillfulness with what we do when we meet our experience, and the learning the skillfulness of when to and how to turn towards what's happening or equally sometimes, actually, the importance of learning when and how to turn away from what's happening. There's a lot of talk in this kind of practice of being with what is to the point of spiritual cliché. Right? Oh, just got to be with what is and be with what is. And it's sometimes just the right thing. But equally important sometimes is the importance of choosing to divert one's attention skillfully because what is right now is what? It's too compelling or it's frightening or it's overwhelming or it's overly confusing. If you're confused or overwhelmed or frightened you don't have the resources left to be with what is. Right? The nature of those kind of very afflictive emotions means if that once they've taken up all the space, once they've become overwhelming or nearly overwhelming, one can't be with them in that sense. One has to actually divert the attention to something one can be with. Like the example, for example, that we spoke about earlier. If you're sitting and you've been here for a while and you're very, very uncomfortable and legs are burning and shoulders are burning and mind is doing nothing but complaining, well, what do, what are we going to tell? What are you going to tell yourself? Oh, you just be with what is. Right. In theory, there's a there's a great value to being with what is. Like we explained this morning, the, that the value of abiding with discomfort, the value of learning about resistance. But like we mentioned this morning, if it's got to the point of overwhelm, it's not skillful anymore. What's skillful? Oh, turn away towards something that can provide some sense of ease walking in the garden for example so different ways that one can get stuck in the idea of being with what is and right? things are very difficult and just feeling I've just got to hang out with, with that sometimes on the opposite side as well. One can, uh, but with a similar sense of feeling like I have to be with the difficult. I can have some sense, like somebody else said, about the meditation uh, sometimes feeling very serious. Or like somebody else said, oh, it's difficult to turn inward because there's a lot of joy. Right? Some assumption we easily have that. To be here should be serious or even should be miserable right? Of course we wouldn't really we wouldn't really say, oh, I'm going to go I'm going off to go to a house to be miserable for a week. Right? But there's some sense that if I'm really practicing, I should be somehow, I should be engaged with some problem. I should be working on my issues. I should be um you know tussling with my experience in order to somehow free it. So when things are difficult, too much, you know and the sense that I should stay with, or similarly when things are pleasant, one goes outside, uh, oh, and like uh, we heard, and like I'm sure others of you have experienced, like I felt myself doing some walking meditation outside earlier, oh, rather wonderful a taste of spring. The aliveness of birdsong, springtime sunshine, grass on the ground, blue of the sky, the wonder of body just doing its thing. Quite wonderful. And yet to notice how sometimes in the midst, oh, wonderful, enjoying, enjoying, and then the thought that arises, all right, well I'm not supposed to be enjoying myself, I better go back and meditate. Oh. Interesting to notice that. So that there's some sense of kind of turning towards this being work. So we might say, how to, we might ask ourselves, how to really honor a certain sense of dilig- diligence, of sincerity, of consistency in our practice without making it into work. How to be diligent? How to be consistent? How to be sincere? How to be constant in one's practice? Remember I asked you last night, please practice in every single moment. But don't make it into work. And easy to err uh, on one side or the other. Either to get caught in trying, you know, if I'm going to be diligent and sincere and all those other adjectives he said, you know, and then getting dried up about it, or getting a little caught on the other side, oh, he said not to make it work. Oh. And then one kind of can get a little floppy in one's practice. Or it might be that you find yourself on the other side of that, of a kind of um, wanting to move away too quickly from any sense of difficulty or of discomfort. Wanting to see how can I get comfortable? How can I find something pleasant? And then kind of looking through those eyes, looking for meditation to be comfortable or enjoyable and then if it's not, feeling disappointed, discouraged then going to see if you can find something else which would be comfortable or enjoyable So there too, to see what's what's skillful how to orientate your attention skillfully because left to its own devices attention doesn't tend to orientate very skillfully Left to its own devices, attention gravitates to its compulsions and its contractions, its demands and its defences and distractions. Mind will fixate on what I want or fixate on what I don't want or if, it doesn't, if there isn't a strong pull in either direction, it'll s- roam around looking for a new fixation. So, this skillfulness is one of cultivating an appropriate attention cultivating a patient attention, cultivating a generous attention And these days, and this open practice form and just the, the movements of your own mind, moment by moment are an an opportunity again and again and again faced with pleasant experience or unpleasant experience or neutral experience, faced with restlessness or dullness or fixation or resistance or doubt or whatever it may be this is an extraordinary um, training ground or laboratory in which to find out how to incline your attention skillfully, so we can give some clues, right? In terms of a certain willingness to abide with the with the uncomfortable, a certain uh, offering oneself some ease and nourishment if if there's a sense of overwhelm or distress. But really, we 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 internalize that skillfulness not by listening to something that I can say and trying to apply it particularly but in the laboratory of our practice in the finding out during the day in what we called yesterday that listening closely to your life seeing where mind is going by its habit and finding out how would it be skillful right now to incline my attention. What does it mean, in, we might say in the language of the tradition, right, what does it mean right now to cultivate the wholesome, to abandon the unwholesome? And then to know the fruits of that, that skillfulness. So that if one's been caught, the mind's gone off somewhere to some uh, um, to boredom, for example. I'm bored of sitting, but then I'm very quickly quite bored of walking as well, and then I'm bored of the tea. Then that pretty much exhausts all possibilities already, right? So then I'm just bored of being here. And it's hard, I look down the schedule waiting for the next non-boring thing and I can't find it. And then maybe you notice oh, I'm just, that's just what am I doing? So boredom has arisen. We don't, we don't get to choose what arises. What we do get to choose is our skillfulness with it. But if we don't notice the state of boredom for example when it arises then you don't get to choose your skillfulness. All you get is your habitual response so the habitual response to boredom is maybe you get discouraged, maybe you get restless, etc, etc and you c- kind of act out that habitual uh, response for a while and then the marvelousness of your practice finally breaks through and you see Oh, that, that's the habitual sp- response to boredom, right? You get to see, well, w- what's the skillfulness in it? What does it cultivate? Oh, it cultivates discouragement. It cultivates restlessness. OK, well, what might be skillful with that? And then you get to find out what's skillful. It may be that it's skillful just to say, oh, let me commit to something. Let me commit to sitting here for the next 40 minutes. And in that commitment, I just get to see the boredom rhetoric happening. Oh yes, but I've had enough now. Oh yes, but it's like, oh yeah, I get to just see boredom as boredom rather than seeing it as the truth of my experience. So it might be that you find out that just a certain commitment is a skillful antidote to boredom. Or it may be that you find out that actually investigating the boredom is a skillful response. What do I mean by investigating boredom? That actually you start to feel into it the shape, the tone of boredom, the way it colors the mind. You get to find out something about the way boredom literally colors your view. A bored mind state looks out and sees a boring world. It's never true that the world is boring any more than it's necessarily true that the world is interesting. The world is like this. Bored minds sees boring. Uh, A delighted mind sees delight. A joyful mind sees joy, etc. The world isn't any of those things. It just has its affect in the moment. And then you get to explore that affect. You get to find out about the nature of boredom. So that in that way, the skillfulness conduces to freedom. Boredom doesn't uh, cut off our freedom. Frustration doesn't cut off our freedom. Confusion doesn't cut off our freedom. Anger doesn't cut off our freedom. It's the unskillful response, the whipping up a drama out of those movements that cuts off our freedom. So that conducing to freedom from being skillful with knowing the state of mind that's here right now, knowing the nature of boredom or knowing the nature of frustration or whatever the state might be, knowing its temporariness, knowing the way it colors the mind, it it's descri- tends towards describing the world to us in a way that presents as true and yet can be seen through. And then when we stop feeding it, when we wake up to our habitual response to it, it starts to thin out, to evaporate, to lose its power over us. So I think I said I want you to speak about three qualities that conduce to freedom. So clarity, the way we unpacked that. Skillfulness in directing your attention. And then thirdly, love. Love conduces to freedom. And again, we're in danger of falling into spiritual cliché. Right? Oh, love, just love, love conduces to freedom. And so that also needs unpacking a little bit. Mm, We tend to use that when we speak about love in the conventional sense we're often speaking about a a kind of a lot of a sort of stimulation of excitable feelings. Right? That's not quite what I mean. So expressions of love rather refined expressions of love become very available to us when we're cultivating sensitivity and receptivity and a close look at things and yet it's easy actually to overlook the the, the significance of what's happening in the heart love conduces to freedom mostly by letting that loving expression really have its moment and its movement. So, for example, that uh, appreciation of the day that we heard about earlier. If you look closely, those of you who have spent much time outside today and been touched by the delight of the springtime, the energy and liveliness and beauty of the springtime, So, like I asked the person, what's the, how did it affect you? That delight, appreciation, enjoyment, if we really, if we really let ourselves have it, if we really let ourselves uh, feel and explore it, we recognize how the response of, the heart's response of appreciation, delight, enjoyment, is love. We're loving what is. We're feeling touched by what is. We're feeling intimate with what is. We're feeling the sense of the wonder of the uh, of this expression of life. And to let yourself have that wonder and appreciation means to open up more fully to the experience. So kind of In the tradition, it's spoken about as a boundless, limitless, boundaryless, all-encompassing quality. There's no degree, there's no end to the way the heart can appreciate and delight in the beautiful. So when you're struck by the beautiful, whether it's the beauty uh, that you see around you when you're outside, Whether it's the beauty of just a refined moment, and maybe the being struck by the beauty and wonder of just the fact that this body breathes—it's not to be taken for granted, right? We don't know how long it'll keep doing that for. So when one's struck by beauty, when when the effect of that is appreciation, wonder, gratitude, oh. Let that in. Let it nourish your practice. Let it expand your heart. Freedom means to be able to love freely. Love fully. Love fluidly. And sometimes when when confronted by the beautiful, that's what to love fully and freely means. To know that beauty be nourished by that beauty. And then sometimes what's happening, what we're touched by isn't the beautiful, what we're touched by is the painful. And love is equally important there. Maybe as some of you have mentioned, painful conditions going on in the circumstances of your lives and relationships. And that you can feel in certain moments the impact of those conditions, the impact on the heart. Some fear, some hurt, some grief, some confusion. The the Unreliable nature of our world is such that you put any group of this size together and within that group there will be people that are touched very personally, closely by recent grief, by terminal illness, one's own or that of someone very close to you. Um, Loss of a close relationship. And changes in one's uh, living circumstances, or financial circumstances, or work circumstances. And in the face of that which is painful, or uncomfortable, or unwished for, how easily our tendency isn't to be loving towards the fact that we're dealing with that. How easily the tendency is to somehow try to overcome, try to toughen up, try to push away, try to forget about. Or the tendency is to somehow just become embroiled in the drama of what happened and why it happened and how it could have been different if it had happened differently and what I can do when I get out the retreat to try and make up for what I didn't do before and uh, the inner soap opera. So what does it mean to love the difficult, the painful? It really means to attend gently, forgivingly, tenderly. You don't have to like what's happening in order to love it. in the face of the difficult and the painful, we love by daring to allow what's here to be here because it's what here, it's what's here. We attend lovingly by holding ourselves gently in the midst of difficult or painful experience. It's not easy to be confronted by loss or grief or hurt or separation, etc. etc. So don't demand of yourself that it be easy, or don't demand of yourself that you should be meeting it in a certain way or in a better way. Don't demand of yourself that you should be over it by now. In fact, don't demand anything of yourself. To love when things are difficult or painful. Which in the context of the way we're speaking about it today means to conduce in the direction of freedom means to be tender, gentle. Sometimes what's happening isn't particularly difficult and yet isn't particularly beautiful. In fact, it's quite ordinary. It's just life. It uh, doesn't have the very strong pull one way or the other. And yet, in the absence of those two strong directions, the particularly beautiful or the particularly painful, how easily we get, or we notice, just the habit of a kind of low-level, niggling negativity. Usually, a mixture of towards ourselves, right? Oh, why can't I concentrate so uh, better? What's the matter with me? Why don't my legs behave? Um, oh, I'm being so restless. Uh, I wish I hadn't bothered coming, etc. etc. We tend to sort of mix up, we've all each got our own ratios, but a mix of that and a similar sort of low level negativity towards others. Why doesn't that person put their shoes together better? Did he really need to take that much lunch on his plate? Um, why can't she You know that you know the, you know the, the stuff right. and it's just it's just you know the untrained mind, like we say, tends to go in all kinds of unhelpful directions. It's not helpful to be just uh, habitually negative or moany, or judgmental towards yourself or to others, but that's where we find mind going. And so the practice of love with that is twofold really. Firstly, it's actually to just constantly forgive yourself for being negative to yourself or others. Because hey, it's just human. We don't like to admit to it, it doesn't reflect very well on us. Oh, what did you do, spend the morning doing? Oh, I'm just being generally negative about myself and everybody else. (laughs) But it's all too tragically human. So the first part of that is just letting yourself off the hook. right? Forgiving yourself. You know you don't need to f- you 're not going to follow through with any other things you may have just thought of uh, something unpleasant or uh, mean spirited about uh, you and you and you and you and you that 's okay you 're not going to tell them that stuff right? so just the kind of ah oh, dropping it otherwise you layer the initial negativity with a subsequent layer of negativity. Not only have I been thinking negative things, now oh, I'm such a shit for having thought that about them and what's the matter with me and why am I so judgmental and I'm so, I'm supposed to be a spiritual person. Oh God. So that's one way you recover a kind of general, loving, uh, kind orientation forgiving yourself. And then the other way is that you can just conduce to letting your attention, the attention that you are just giving to your experience moment by moment, you know, the attention to the breath, the attention to the walking, you can feel for a generous quality to that attention, a kind quality to that attention. So that we might speak about it as mindfulness or as awareness or as present moment attention. But the, what we mean mo- by that, or at least what we're feeling for with that is uh, a gentle attention, an allowing attention, a kind attention. And Stephen Levine another lo- wonderful teacher who just uh, died a couple of months ago, uh, often would use the term merciful awareness. Holding your experience in merciful awareness. And of course a lot of you will be familiar with metta practice in the Buddhist tradition, which is the particular cultivation of that quality of kindness, care, warmth. And yet, as well as uh, being able to cultivate that with uh, various uh, intentional practices, it's very important that that be actually an integral part of our awareness practice. Otherwise, like we say, we end up giving a dry attention. So, in terms of speaking about this as uh, the quality of love that conduces to freedom, When we speak about awareness of breath, or awareness of body, or awareness of walking, we could equally be speaking about sitting here as a way of loving the breathing. Not in some kind of uh, loving in the sort of cultural associations of Valentine's cards and glitter and Hollywood endings. Loving the breathing means attending gently to it, attending kindly, attending intimately, attending forgivingly, and those qualities conduce enormously to a freedom of being, to a capacity to be here wisely, gently, openly, with the comings and goings of heart and mind and world. And then also sometimes, one is struck more just by the vicissitudes of one's experience, right? pleasant to unpleasant, this to that. One minute there's a certain stillness, and one's busy telling oneself, "I've such a, f- I've really got the hang of this meditation thing now. I'm going to boss this meditation." And then. Next, uh, then one goes out, one comes back in, and then mind is here and there, and then one's very discouraged. Oh, I don't know why I didn't know why I bothered, etc. And the quality of love that's pointed to in the Buddhist tradition to bring to that vicissitude is just this kind of spaciousness. One of my friends has a lovely phrase he uses. He just says, right now it's like this. Right now, it's like this. It's a wonderful uh, way to withdraw from the drama making. Because when we're caught up in the wonder of the fact that things are actually aligning in a way I like right now, we tend to think that's how it is, or that's how it could be. We ascribe some sort of solidity or permanence to that, which is then the setup for disappointment when it changes. Or equally when things are uncomfortable or difficult, we ascribe the same kind of solidity or permanence to that. When there's some wave of sadness that comes up in response to a memory, how easily we give it that solidity by saying, oh it's so sad, or oh I'm so sad. As if that's who I am, I am sad. We know it philosophically that things change, but in the moment we relate to it as if that's how I am and who I am and how it is. I'm sad. But actually, well, right now it's like this. Sadness has its little brief display. And you th- think just over the kind of the, the unfolding of the day. The texture, the changing texture of the day. Sometimes pleasant, sometimes unpleasant. Sometimes like this, sometimes like that. And there's a kind of, it's the, the spacious aspect of love. The willingness to hold it all as it is. The willingness to allow the appearances and the disappearances. The comings and the goings. Right now, briefly, it's like this. And this, like this, has a lot of possibility in it. The possibility of cultivating clarity, which dissolves our habitual tendencies. Right now it's like this, with the possibility for cultivating skillfulness, which transforms our habits and right now it's like this whether wonderful, beautiful, delightful or difficult and painful and poignant or just ordinary and it has the possibility for love in it to attend gently lovingly to whatever's here this conduces to freedom of being And so it's our wish together, our aspiration together that our practice be in the service of clarity and skillfulness and love. And our practice therefore conduce to freedom for our deepest benefit and welfare and that of all those we have contact with. friends